Hi, it's Mickey Dolans here. You're listening to Inspirado Projecto. There are places I remember all my life, though some have changed, some forever, not for better. Some have gone and some re. Hey! Hey! What are you doing? You can't stick your thumb up my bum! Hey, man, hey! It's okay! I work for the TSA! <laughs> I didn't realize. Well, as you were. <laughs> All right, man. Yeah, that's a way. That's a way. <laughs> All right, here we go. We're going to talk with John Garside of Forgotten Tales. Here he is. Oh, hold on. Hold on. Are you, are you lost in the canyon? Oh yeah, Hello. I love it, dude. Oh, there we go. It's a transmission from there a whole nother cosmic. All right, so okay, so you <clears throat> did you receive an email to your personal email, or did you did you get it on one of your videos, or what was the complaint that you got? Well, okay, first let me let me back up just a little bit and just say that the forgotten tales. You know, I do a lot of heavy research. I do um, I do my due diligence. I really dig deep and try very hard to be as accurate as I possibly can. I do not change history. I just report history. That said, I might miss something out of that, but, but I don't think, well, let me just start by saying this, that with Forgotten Tales, we receive lots of compliments. People saying, oh my gosh, you know, the Electrodome, that was, that was my grandfather's, and they have pictures of, of it. Then we have the plane crash, and the, the plane crash that, that flight 416 West that happened in the Puente Hills and, and I report on that and then you know months later I got emails from people who were like I didn't know how my grandfather actually died I knew it was a plane crash but I didn't know the details thank you so much so I really do do a good job with that I, I, I gotta say because if I don't who will <laughs> I really do my due diligence to get all of the information I possibly can until I can't until I can't ask any more questions until I feel like so when I'm making these if I have questions I can't finish the video I have to find all the answers that said sometimes sometimes the answers I discover are not readily available uh, and recently so I have a documentary that I put out I think in 2014 called How the Canyon Got Its Name and it's about Trimble Canyon in, in Whittier and Hacienda Heights. And <clears throat> it documents the story of Robert Trimble, a Scottish immigrant who came over here and, and uh, the canyon ends up being named after him. Well, I tried to go even further into the past to tell the story of how the canyon got its name at first by telling the story of the Native Americans because one of the myths is that uh, back in the day when the, the Spanish came over with their conquistadors, they would try to convert, and they're, you know, after they built the missions, 
they would try to convert the natives to Catholicism. And the urban legend is that they would be murdered and they would take them up to Trumbull Canyon and kill them there. And that the Native Americans started calling the canyon Kutugna. And according to the urban legend, Kutugna means the dark place or the devil. And I just want to stop right there and say all of that is bullshit. <laughs> it's not. It's not. It's not Hutugna, and they didn't take them to the canyon. Uh, the mission, the San Gabriel mission, was originally built in 1771, and it was built where the Whittier Narrows is, not in the city of San Gabriel where it is today. Um, so but what happened is four years after it was built, it was washed away and they rebuilt it in San Gabriel. But when they were in Whittier Narrows, that's where they were killed. I mean, they did kill the, the conquistadors. That's the part of the myth that is true, is that the conquistadors and the Spanish did kill, they tortured Native Americans uh, if they did not want to convert to Catholicism. And they would torture them until they died. The idea was to torture them until they said, okay, okay, I accept Jesus Christ. And they, but, you know, so they, they would get killed that way and they would be buried somewhere there where the mission was. Okay, so Hutukna actually is the name of the village that the Native Americans called uh, where basically where Yorba um, uh, Linda is today. Where Yorba Linda is was a, a, a village and they called that Hutukna. It didn't mean dark place or any of that. section on the front of how the canyon got its name about that and recently it's only maybe about two minutes it's not very long and I thought you know I still see people talking about YouTube now online you know locally uh, you know and I'm like you know I'm gonna put this out there just so people know that YouTube doesn't mean that so I put it out there no big deal I just put it out there <laughs> well in the video I refer to the natives as the Pongola tribe they were also called the uh, uh, Gabrieleno Indians, but Tongva is what I readily see. Now, recently someone call, uh, emailed me, messaged me on Facebook, messaged me on, on uh, 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 YouTube saying that the Tongva doesn't exist, that, that someone, came, someone came along in the 1920s and hijacked our people, basically, and started calling them the Tongva, but they're called something else now. I'll be honest, I can't remember that name right now. So that's the latest, that's the latest email I got right now. That's the complaint. They think that I'm, that I've uh, called them something that they're not, and maybe, maybe that's true. I don't know, but if you go into books and you read about it, it's the Tongva people. And so, but that's just an example because even though I do my due diligence and I read everything I possibly can, there are some things that that are harder to get an answer to. Because, and I've reached out to the Tongva tribes and, and tried to talk to people that will, you know, give me information, but they 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 don't want to they don't want to talk to me. <laughs> so I've got this one guy who wants to. And now I've replied to him several times. And I'm like, yeah, sure, you know, talk to me. Tell me what, tell me what, you, what information you have. 
give me some sources so I can look into this. I will be happy to change that short video and re-upload it. But he won't reply to me now. So, <laughs> so even though uh, someone else has more information out there, I would love to dig deeper into it. Um, you know, talk to me. Let's talk. I would love to hear what you have to say. But, you know, so unless I start just researching that short story that I just was putting out there because of Hutubna, um, now I've got a whole kettle of worms that I've <laughs> unboxed. Oh, kettle of worms. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Well, it's interesting because yeah. it's like, how deep does one, how deep is one required uh, by anyone, any entity, uh, you know, authority, I guess. How, how deep is one required to go into the investigation? I mean, how many levels deep and well, how many, you it's know. Sort of like, it's, it's sort of like this. I, I can equate it to something like this. When you do artwork, right, and you're drawing or you're creating a, a, a film or you're uh, uh, composing a song or what have you, it's done. Because really, you could just keep working on it, right? For instance, again, I'll go back to when I made How the Canyon Got Its Name. I still have never seen... Okay, so for those of you who have not seen this documentary, you can see it on YouTube, again, called How the Canyon Got, it, How the Canyon Got Its Name. And it's marvelous. It's, it's great. Your curiosity. It's so funny. The, the idea came to me today that the, the key word of question is quest. So so the 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 quest is the question. The more the more you question, that's the quest because your your curiosity. And it does put you on a quest. Yeah, it, you've got. Oh my gosh! I, I went on a I went on a long quest of how the canyon got its name, and yet I never found a single photograph of Robert Turnbull, the guy that the canyon is named after. So for a long time, I was trying to figure out. Well, how am I going to do this? How am I going to how am I going to tell the story of this man without any kind of photos of this man? Oh, boy. I, I very yeah. little information. The most information I had on this man was how he died, how he was murdered, and even that had question marks around Which is so, so crazy to... for a historical figure having a canyon named after him and all. You figure there'd be statues, you know, in his named, in parks named after him and stuff, you know? And it's weird well, that you had to go down... He was a town drunk, and so <laughs> not many town drunks get a statue. True, of true. The only reason they, the only reason they named it for him, was because he owned it. He owned ah. the canyon. So they're like, well, poor guy, he got killed. Well, I guess we can call it Trumbull Canyon. Right. right. I gotcha. I see. And then, and then he was completely forgotten after that. His name lived on, but no one knew who who he was. No one knew anything about it. In fact. What led me to want to do a story on that was I used to take Turnbull Canyon to work every day, and I would drive over it and wonder why, why, why Turnbull? Did they? And, uh, and so I started, you know, in my mind thinking about what could it be named after. And I was like, well, William Workman, who on the other side of the hill in Hacienda Heights in that area, has um, that's where he lived, and he had cattle maybe this is where he turned the bulls around you know i don't know i was just trying to come up with yeah oh yeah names for I, things you I, know i wasn't thinking it was someone's name i was thinking, right oh turn a bull i don't know yeah uh, what do i know Right. Was there a rodeo over there what was there a hidden you know electronic <laughs> yeah. electronic bull that we didn't yeah. know about it was literally 
really just me being curious that led to doing that. And it mm. was just, you know. Uh, and then also, uh, there's a man named Paul Spitzieri who runs the Workman Temple Homestead Museum in the City of Industry. And when I reached out to him about it, he sent me an article about Robert Turnbull. And he's like, yeah, here you go. And that was the first lead I got. And from that, I just started reading newspapers, reading uh, books from the, the Whittier Library, uh, just digging as deep as I could. I, I, I even went to the Hall of Records to find um, information about uh, the property that he owned. And, you know, I mean, I really went all out thinking, okay, you know, go to the Hall of Records. They're definitely going to have a photograph of this guy, right? Nah, I don't know. <laughs> but what's funny is, so my answer to making that was to do reenactments. So I cast basically my family. My brother-in-law plays Robert Turnbull. And then the guy who plays uh, Jonathan Bailey, who was a, a Quaker in Whittier, he's actually a Quaker. I found a guy Dude. in Whittier. And he looks so much like him. He looks just well, like him. Here, here's how I found His name was Russ Litchfield. And here's how I found Man. Russ. My wife, were, my wife and I were sitting in a car at the intersection of, where, where the hell were we? Philadelphia and Painter and Whittier. And I saw this guy crossing the street and I pointed to him and go, oh my God. I go, that's the guy I need to have in my video to play Jonathan Bailey. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Mustache. He looks like a Quaker. Oh my God. And my wife goes, oh, that's Russ. I no go, Who? way. She goes, Russ Litchfield. He, he plays he plays the pipe organ at, at the first, first Whittier church where Mary and I got married. Oh my God. And I'm like, are you kidding me? So I re I found him. I reached out to him and asked him, hey, would you want to play Jonathan Bailey in this? He goes, oh, yes. He goes, I saw your other documentaries. I'd love to play Dude, wow. Wow. So, so brought him in. And then, then my brother-in-law, I guess I'm getting off the track a little bit, but my brother-in-law played Robert Trimble. Now, again, I have no idea what he looked like, so it didn't matter how he shaved right. his beard or whatever. Right. I just knew that he was a town drunk. So he played him in this video. He was so good. And what's funny is now people who write blogs about, since I've made these, people who've written blogs about urban legends in the area and Turnbull Canyon, they've actually cap screen captured uh, uh, my brother-in-law. His name is Casey. Dude. Screen captured Casey's face from uh, the video. Oh, my Robert God. Turnbull. Oh, my and God. And they're posting it on online now as... As that that is Robert Turnbull. <laughs> it's so funny because, like, in the video it's itself, you point yeah, out you just. It's funny because you put out the disclaimer, like you say, like, look, this is yeah. this is this is a portrayal, you know, like this is just a fill-in, so to speak. He's sort of a stand-in. Yeah, I, I don't I, have I, a real. I put, <laughs> yeah, I put in the video. I put in the video yeah. that that all photos of Robert Turnbull are re recreations. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> what's funny is that Casey grew up. In Whittier, right next to Trimble Canyon, like like Dude. one block up is oh Trimble Canyon Road. Oh and my God! I grew up hanging out in Trimble Canyon. And I I asked him one day. I said, "Did you ever imagine that people would now mistake you as Robert Turnbull?" He goes, "No, man. How would I?" Dude, imagine that, being a little kid, growing up next to Turnbull Canyon, knowing that name your whole life, you don't know anything about it, and that yeah. kind of reality manifestation where you end up becoming the face and the name Other of that thing. thing. It's so funny, it's the a total Back to the Future about, thing. Yes, and the only thing he really knew about Trumbull Canyon was that it was spooky and it had all these urban legends and myths 
about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Little did he realize. Little did he realize that one day his future brother-in-law would end up making documentaries specifically to crack the codes on on those things in that town. You know, like what an interesting thing. That's right. Yeah. God, it's so exciting. <laughs> it is so exciting. And I had the yeah. pleasure of playing um, William Workman. God, that was so great to be able to get Josh, my brother, in there. And, and, and not, not in one, yeah, you were in that too. So, so you played William Workman, and I brought your brother in to play uh, uh, Garvey. Yeah. Uh, oh my gosh, it was so. I still, I should have bought a better mustache for your brother to wear. But oh that's my okay. god! Oh so, my god! It works. Oh my god! It was. So what's great is that you you played William Workman in that. And I already knew I was going to do the Battle of Providencia. I thought immediately I knew I was going to do re- reenactments for that. I thought, well, this is going to be great because I've already got my William Workman. He'd come into the prequel with the, the Battle of Providencia. There you were again as William Workman, the younger William Workman. Yeah, that was so cool, so interesting to be able to go back what, through the hands of I, time. One of, one of my favorite shots of Tyler Canning God's name is when you look up from the paper and you look almost like a ghoul. Yes! It's perfect. Oh my God. The old timey photos of William Workman are so spooky. Oh my. He has just a scowl on his face. He just looks like he just ate a sour piece of dog shit. Totally. His and eyes are sunken in. <laughs> he, um. Yes. Oh my God! My buddy Jimmy said that it looked like uh, this old TV, sort of like Sven Gulli type of dude that used to be out there. His name was like Carlisle or something. I forgot what his name was, but he he had that kind of look about him. And so my buddy Jimmy did like a side by side, you know, face next to face thing. And I'm like, Oh my God, that's crazy! <laughs> he looked like a Phantom of the Opera type of dude. Oh my God! And it was great because Josh with the with the mustache you just mentioned, um, my dad my dad saw that photo. He's like, Holy cow! You look like our our um, our relative, you know, Alexander Clendenin, who, you know, from who used to live uh, in Chicago, you know, and then he put up this photo and I'm like, oh, my God, Josh is a spitting image of this guy. So it was just so crazy to be able to have to to be able to act with my brother in there and then for it to kind of echo these these zeitgeists of, of my family history, too. I mean, it was so interesting for us to be at the actual house that William Workman yes. committed suicide in. I mean, it was just like, yeah, so, whoa, dude. So for me, that was the biggest thrill. So for anyone who has not seen how the Canning God's name, which is probably a majority of you, um, we reenacted William Workman. I'm not going to give away the whole story. Go watch the video if you want the whole story. But I will tell you this, that William Workman commits suicide. Now, the cool thing about, not the, not the suicide part, but the cool thing about the story and what we were able to do is Paul Spitzieri, who I mentioned before, who gave me the initial um, kick in the in the rear to really, you know, dive deep on Robert Trimble. <clears throat> he is he runs the Workman Temple Homestead, which is where William Workman lived, and his homestead is still there. And he let us come in and shoot the reenactment on the exact lo- in the exact locations where everything happened. So the doorstep where we, where uh, Richard Garvey comes up and knocks on the door, which was played by your brother, and then you answer the door, Kurt, as William Workman, is exactly where that moment happened. And then when uh, when William Workman shoots himself, we don't go into the room and, and get graphic and show all that. But I do go outside with with the camera and show the actual room window where he did it. 
And we actually went in there with a light, and I, I, I brought the light up bright and brought it down so it looked like a gunshot and all that through the window. But that's the actual room where it happened. So for me, even though it's a, it's a morbid subject, for me, after researching it, all those, for all those, well, for the better part of a year, I was researching and writing. And, oh my God, to go in there and actually tell that story in the exact location, that was really thrilling for me. It was very exciting for me to, to be able to do that. Even though we didn't have a budget, and it was very low budget, and it didn't matter. We were just telling the story. And for me, that was a thrill. Well, and in the way that everybody came together, the way that they did, the makeup was just like she she put, she was able to make me look like an older guy and make my eyes look sunken in. And then yeah, Michael Ornelas, who played Doctor Agotch and Max Neptune, he gave us the costumes, right? Didn't he? He had access to the wardrobes. Yeah, he, he had costumes. Yeah. Oh my god. Doctor Agotch and Max Neptune, and then the the lady who did the makeup for you, that's Heather Gorbea. That's my wife's best friend. She just did it to have fun because she was oh excited God. to participate. And, and in fact, I, I should mention also, just on the subject, in that same video when we, we when the Quakers, when, when Robert Trimble goes to meet the Quakers at the house, uh, that's the Bailey house. That's where That's the real house, house man. God, this yeah, is crazy. Really these historical structures still exist, and then you're able to shoot there. And because you know these people love the fact that you're you're, you're talking so much and, and and providing so much historical uh, material about their their beloved city. Here, they're like, okay, we're opening up our doors. We're opening up our historical monuments to you, to to be able to recreate these moments in time and to really. I mean, what better history lesson than to have reenactments in the actual places where yeah. these things happen and wrap people's brains around? Because yeah. I'm sure there are kids who have gone on field trips all the time to these locations. It's like blah, 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 in one ear and out the other. But when they got something yeah. to look at, especially since this is the thing I well, want to get okay. into. So in, in fourth grade, so I grew up in that area. I grew up in West Covina. Yeah. I went to the Hacienda Unified School District. And when I went to Valinda Elementary School, <clears throat> and also... Uh, I went to Workman High School, named that, it's William Workman High School. Um, so it's a big deal, that, that part of history in the area, but not, almost no one really knows what it is. Mm-hmm. Almost no one really knows. Like, so for instance, in fourth grade, I went to William Workman Homestead on a, on a field trip. And I guess at that time, it had only been open for four years or so. I didn't know that at the time. But, you know, we walked through and got a tour of an old house, you know, and they're talking to me about, you know, the 20s, and they're talking to us about, you know, cattle, they're talking to us about, you know, all this stuff, but they never once, I didn't even know that William Morkman committed suicide until I started researching this subject. I have no idea. You know, it's not something that's talked about, and understandably so, I guess, but those are the types of fascinating things that hook you into to local history is to find out the personal side of things. Not just that, here's this old house. It was built in 1875. Yeah. And, or, or in this case, it would be 1845. Or, you know, whatever the case. You know, to find out that these were, you know, find out the details about these people, actual people that, that lived. Yeah. To it, me, that's that's an even bigger thrill. Yeah, it personalizes it. It gives you it gives you reasons to even care about the thing at all because you're you're yeah, learning like, about the lives that lived there, care. what made that area what it was, and you know gives you this kind of idea of like, whoa, okay, this is what it used to look like. This is how it got here. Ooh, that's what happened there. Um, well, for instance, if you if you were in the classroom and they said, 
This is Turnbull Canyon, named for Robert Turnbull yeah. in 1888. Uh, uh, Scottish immigrant. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. right. Like, okay. Yeah. It just sits on the table and gets stale right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you, if you dive deep and you say, well, he was an alcoholic, and he came here so he can buy and trade and sell land and make money off of it by buying land cheap and then selling it for a profit, or, you know, you find out that he's actually connected to the Quakers, and he's actually connected to, because the Quakers lived in, so to paint a picture for anyone who doesn't know the area, you have the city of Whittier. The backdrop for Whittier is a bunch of hills. Within the hill is Trimble Canyon. If you go over the hill to the other side, via Trumbull Canyon, you're in Hacienda Heights. That's the area where William, oh God, I can't talk, where William Workman lived. So you have William Workman on one side, and you have the Quakers on the other side. The canyon literally, physically connects the two cities together with a road. But to find out later that the namesake of the town actually had connections to William Workman and the Quakers to personally that's a mind blow to me to someone who grew up in the area who was born in Whittier and raised in in, in the in the in more on the other side of the hill where William Workman was that blows my mind to know that not only does it physically connect but personally the people that these places are named after they're personally connected and that just trips me out well, and the fact that you're able to actually dramatize these things, actually show show what happened according to the records, and um, and, and and now people have these visual images now. Every time, okay, so this is one of the interesting things. Your your videos uh, have been circulating around as educational tools, huh? Within the schools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm told anyway. People tell me that that uh, oh, I I play your video, you know, for our school, or you know, I. I and we teach history this way. Uh, a video production class showed one of them. So this is this is what they said to me. I I was able to show them how how easy it is to make a documentary a documentary from scratch. You know, not using much of anything. And it's like, well, yeah, it's true. Wow, I mean, that is good to know that you're I, an, an example of that of showing that you can be creative without without having to have some big studio budgets and you know huge cameras well, and. Yeah, in this day and age, I mean, we are fortunate that, you know, a lot of stuff is, is online. Uh, not everything is. I mean, for instance, when I did the plane crash, um, when I did that documentary, there's not a lot, there's not a lot of information online about this stuff. That's why I dig deep, because they start off as urban legends. And that was my whole goal with Forgotten Tales, was to take urban legends and myths and tell the truth about them. Get to the bottom, find out what the myth is, explore the myth, and then find the truth behind it. And so the plane crash, people thought it was a military plane that had experimental children from Area 51 on it that had supernatural powers, and the government purposely crashed it into the hills because back in 1952, it, would, it was a very rural area. But none of that's true. It's all horseshit. <laughs> none of it's true. <laughs> it was a it was a commuter plane. It was, and and there was fog, and the pilot tried to come down underneath the the fog, and he came too low, ten feet too low. He already had his his landing gears down because he thought he oh. was somewhere he wasn't. He thought he was over Burbank, and the uh, landing gears were 
just slightly, if those landing gears had not been down, he might have just barely missed the tip top of the hill. Oof. But because those, because that that uh, landing gear was down, it snagged the top of the hill. Oh spun no! Spun it like a top oh, in no. midair, and it just slammed into another hill. Oh! And exploded, but. <clears throat> But for that one, I had to dig deep. I had to, I had to go to the FAA. I had to get Boy. details there. I got all the reports on it. Um, I had to. I, there weren't many photos. And then I reached. I found this guy. How did I find him? I can't even remember how I found this guy. Probably YouTube or Facebook or something. He, he and his friends have a five hundred one c three, where they go out and they document. Um, plane crashes, but old ones, old ones. They find the wreckage, and there's still pieces out there. Uh, when a plane crashes into the ground, it doesn't just neatly, you know, you don't just sweep up the glass and you go away. Like if it crashes into a hillside, those parts are going to be there probably for many, many decades, many, many decades. In fact, the, this plane crash that, that I made the documentary about, Flight 416 West, there's still pieces out there. I found a piece of it and took it to the Whittier Museum. Dude, right I think now. that's absolutely awesome. It's so funny because in, in the Indiana Jones nature of you exploring your curiosity oh, and going out there, you actually came across, I mean, this is like Indiana Jones finding that, that idol in the very beginning of, of Raiders of the Lost yeah. Ark. There it is. It's like, ah, and here you found yeah. this actual because I, you I decided lie. to. I won't lie. When I found that part, the only thing that popped in my mind was it belongs to the museum. Dude. And the thing is, is that, yeah, it belongs in a museum. Yeah, exactly. But, but my point of bringing this up is that, um, gosh, I'm forgetting my point. I was going somewhere with this, and I forgot what I was talking well, about. I, I just, uh, well, I just want to say that, first of all, what's so crazy is by you getting down to the truth of these things, you end up uncovering even stranger truths that seem even more like fiction. And that's what's so funny. Oh, okay. Okay, so, okay. Uh, speaking of that, so when I was researching the plane crash, Flight 416 West, again, it's on YouTube if you guys want to check it out. But while I was exploring that, one of the things I have to dive deep on are old newspapers. Old newspapers are a great uh, way to find information. Now, of course, of course, I want to also strict, I want to say this, because there's, there's someone out there listening right now going, ah, but wait a minute. Uh, oh, wait a minute. Newspapers, newspapers <laughs> are not the way to get the whole truth, though. Because sometimes they are—they don't hear things right. You know, right. Like that old game of telephone. You tell a reporter one thing, you write something else. Right. So not everything is quite accurate. But, okay, that said, I was going to the newspapers looking for information on the plane crash. Photos, whatever. Where'd you find these newspapers, people might want to know? Where'd you find the newspapers? Okay, uh, well, okay, in this case, I went, well, I, I, many different places. I went to many different libraries. The best library I found was the Whittier Library. The Whittier Public Library uh, has all of their, their newspapers scanned. Not all of them are online, and I don't know exactly why, but, like, it skips a big part. And one of the big parts is the 1950s. I don't know why. <coughs> Um, I hmm. think they told me why, and I just can't remember. But, but that said, the, the rest of them are online, so I had to go to the library and look up microfilm and pull up I love and it. Found a picture of the, the crash. That was one of the first things I did. But I also went to 
Uh, I went to La Habra. I went to their library. I went to Fullerton. I went to all the libraries that were local that had microfilm of, of old. God, libraries. I love it. And I found photographs. But the, oh, that's where I was going. The coolest thing was I found this guy who documents all these plane crashes, right? <clears throat> and his name is, oh, crap. I can't think of his name. Maka. Uh, well, I'll just call him Mr. Maka. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't remember his name right offhand. I'll think of it in a minute. Pat. Pat Maka. There you go. So Pat Maka, I, I call him, I email him. And he emails me back, gives me his phone number. I tell him what I'm doing. He gives me his phone number, and we talk on the phone. He goes, oh, he goes, I've got all of the photos. Like, what do you mean? Dude. He goes, well, I, and he names the sheriff that I knew the name of. Oh, my God. I read his name in these newspapers. How cool. I knew that guy. So he goes, he was the crime scene photographer. And oh he my gave God. me his entire collection. No way, dude. So... So oh my I God! Went to his house with my friend, an old friend of mine, who is a, a photographer, and he has this incredible scanner that just scans at such a high uh, resolution. Uh, so he, my friend Dan Perez, came with me. Loved him in the car. I hadn't seen him in years. So we had a nice drive, and we went to South Orange County, way down there. Went to this guy's house. His entire garage is dedicated to uh, mapping and documenting old plane crashes and 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 also leaving markers where the plane crashed and and uh you know leaving dedications to those who lost their lives well he has files upon files in his garage oh my he god pulled this, he pulled out this box and there's all these photos of the plane crash that i'm, I'm documenting Oh and we my just God. started scanning and talking and having a good time. And in, in the end, I even interviewed him about it. And I also had him do the, we had some voiceover work in the, uh, in, in the video of, of, of reenactments. And I had him play, why am I not? The, the sheriff's name was, oh man, see, it's been a few years since I did that one. I did that one in 2000. Oh my God. So he played the voice of a guy that he actually knew at the time? Correct. Dude, wow, man, the plot yeah. thickens. These layers, and I love I, the layers. When I asked him if he would oh God. lines and, and he would play the part, he said, he, he goes, I would be honored to play the Oh, uh, okay, I got the sheriff's name. It was Sheriff Sewell Griggers. And Sewell Griggers was an interesting guy, too, because he was the first one. He, he's the one that brought helicopters into the sheriff's department. Like, he was the first one to bring helicopters. He was like, no, this is the way we got to go. And he was also the first person, not sheriff, not, you know, the first person to fly a helicopter to the top of Mount Baldy. Incredible. Yeah. Did, did he do this before he introduced them to the, to the, to the, uh, to the police uh, force, or did he do this after? <laughs> you know, I'm not sure about the timeline on that. All I know is he must have done it before. You know, I don't know. I shouldn't say that because I don't know. I don't know when he. Because I can imagine after flying to, I can imagine fly after flying to Mount Baldy. You want everybody to have that experience. <laughs> You're like, we need helicopters yeah. here and now. <laughs> you guys need to know yeah, what it feels like to fly in these things. Yeah, I don't know what year that was, but you know, figuring that this this took place in 1952, and I'm not sure 
I don't think he was flying a helicopter at that time. And at that time, he was flying a plane. And he was actually the one who found the location of the of the wreck uh, uh, of the, the air wreck. Oh my God, dude! He was flying over, and he he, he identified it. He was in a plane, not a helicopter. So what it the must heck? Have been after that. But, you know, I could be wrong about that. This is so interesting to hear this guy who covered this, and he's got these archives, and little did he realize that one day someone would do a documentary about this, ask him to do this, and then play a part in in that documentary. I mean, such strange things like that, man. Those crazy, strange, cosmic <laughs> things that happen to us in our life where... You know, there are there are events that are that are very close to our hearts, that are near and dear to us, that we put a lot of thought and effort and and uh, uh, energy into, and those things end up growing in, in into the future, well, and we have no way of knowing. Yeah. Well, here's another one. Here's here's one for you. And you were there for all of this um, when we made Max Neptune. For anyone who doesn't know, and I'm sure Kurt has talked about it a lot on the podcast, or at least once in a while. Mm-hmm. We made a movie called Max Neptune and the Menacing Squid. It was a lot of fun to make, but along the way, we found a robot. We were driving ah. down the street, and literally a robot, I'm not even kidding, it's about five feet tall, and it was standing on a yard, and standing in a yard, and it had a sign on it, taped to it, like, and it just said, free, take, take me away, is what it said. So we're like, what? We turned around, made a U-turn, went back, because... I remember thinking in my mind, no way, no way, no way someone's just giving away a robot. Well, now, now, John, let's back up. Let's let's rewind to the moment before before you end up going into that area. Weren't you looking for a house that you've never been to a neighborhood of and you got, 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 got turned around a little bit or something? Didn't you? No, so, so no, no, I, I, I've been there before. Oh, oh. I admit that. I, I, we were going to Jack's house, my, my friend Jack Rodriguez. I can't remember why. But we were going there, and I turned on one street too soon. Mm. His, his was the next street over, Dude. and I turned one street too soon, turned down the street, and, and there there was the robot. I love it! I love this! The, oh, my the God. The coolest part is this. This is, to me now, personally, this is what's so cool about that robot. Is Yes, we, we went over, we started looking at it, the owners came out of the house, said, oh, you got to take the robot? We're like, yeah, we started explaining how we're making the sci-fi movie, and he's like, oh, this is perfect. He goes, his name is Dennis. Oh, I'm my. Like, oh, sh- okay, cool, like, whatever, we'll, we'll call him Dennis. Now, the sad part is we never got to use him in the movie because it just wouldn't, you know, the robot wouldn't cooperate, although I still have faith that maybe one day I'll reshoot his parts. And digitally, you know, do a Lucas and put him in the movie. Yeah, but, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Because, because yeah, absolutely. So, but, but here's the yeah. part. So, yeah, okay. The robot's name is Dennis. Dennis, the robot. Yes. Then years go by. I don't know. That was like 2007, six. That was 2006. 2009. I meet my girlfriend. And we start dating. Well, we end up getting married. Her father's name is Dennis. Dude. Dude. My father-in-law is Dennis. Dude. So then we get married. We have kids. We name our our third boy after her father, Dennis. (laughs) (laughs) So I really regret not having Dennis the Robot in Max Neptune. And maybe one day, no, not maybe. Mark my words, Kurt. He will be in Max Neptune one day. Oh, he will be, and, and in future people adventures. Be, people will be calling 
clamoring for the original version. That's not the original version of Max. That's right. That's right. That's right. I mean, man, and it's so crazy, too. Can you also please talk about how, okay, I love the intersections and all the intricate synchronicities that involve your your grandma being well the same day amount of days old as years old as the as the native you know as the chief and then on top of that <clears throat> the way in which mary um aka dennis's daughter uh how her family how dennis's family um intertwined with your family on that on that train oh oh man okay you want to know that story yes in an abbreviated nutshell. Oh, oh dude, God. no, let's hear it. I want to hear all the intricacies because though each one is oh, dynamic. Each one's dynamic. So, so this is a. And by the way, is your connection okay with with my phone? Oh yeah, oh yeah. And I pu- also put my phone on uh, do not disturb, so that way, in case anyone calls in, it's not gonna you know mess well, with anything. Well, no, I just because you're on my end, you sound a little. Oh, I do. All right, hold on, hold on. Let me switch off this the speaker, and then I'll switch it back on. Hold on a second. All right, hold on a second. All right, how do how do I sound now? You sound just as bad. As long oh as no! I sound good on your you know end, what? I okay. I have it near my computer, um, so you're probably hearing maybe like a. I think you're hearing a fan. Actually, <laughs> I think no, it's no, a it's fan. Like weird, like squeals. And wait. And All right, weird. wait. Can you can you hear me now? How, how is this? No, no, I heard you just fine before. It just sounded crazy. Oh, that's okay. Okay, but do, does it sound? Right. But does it sound decent now? Yeah. Okay, good, 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 good. I did a few I did uh, technical uh, <laughs> changes. Okay, so this is a story of how my my wife and how my wife's family and my family kind of intersected in our history, and it's very odd. Um, I will just say right now, we are not related in case anyone is listening to that. <laughs> that is not the case. That's not that is not the case. We are not related. And I shouldn't even say our family, but our family history intersects. Okay. My grandmother was born in 1911. Late 1911. And 111 days after she was born, my great-grandmother and my grandmother were on a train in, I believe, they're, they're going from Ohio to somewhere. Anyway, long story short, they ended up stopping in uh, uh, Minnesota. Gosh, I hope I'm getting this right. I, I have it, usually have the story fine-tuned in my head, but right now it's sort of all over the place. So let's just say Minnesota for now. So Minnesota. They stopped in Minnesota because there's a snowstorm and it's massive and the train can't move any can't go any further now. so they stop and everyone gets off the train and the only place really where it's warm is a courthouse so they go into this courthouse and normally I, I also know the town I can't think of the town name either right now that's okay they go into this courthouse where there's a hearing happening a court hearing and <clears throat> It's about uh, uh, lumber rights and whose trees belong to who, whose trees are on whose land, and there's all these Native Americans in there, and they're they're 
there's one particular uh, Native American uh, who I call Carbonacue. That's not the correct way to pronounce it. That's just how it was told to me when I was a kid, and it's just sort of stuck. But back in the day, uh, no, the, the white people didn't call him by his Native American name because they couldn't pronounce it much like I can't. Um, instead, they, they called him John Smith. He just went by John Smith. And he his claim to fame was being the oldest man alive. So at this court hearing, they bring him in because he remembers where all the trees are, where all the land is. Oh, my and gosh. The land to who and the trees. And so he's testifying to that. And, and he's claiming at that time to be something like 120 years old or something, right? And he looks at, too, he's old and wrinkly and dark and just looks. His face, you can even look him up. If you look up, if you Google old Indian John Smith, you will find him. He will pop up. He's very wrinkly. Okay, so... So that part of the trial isn't really part of the story other than it was happening when mm. my grandmother and great-grandmother went into the courthouse. Again, my great-grandmother, or my grandmother is just a baby, 111 days old at this point. And they go in, they go into recess, right? And there's a photographer in there. The photographer is set up because he, he's a portrait photographer and he loves taking portraits of Native Americans. Well, what better place? It's like shooting... Uh, shooting fish in a barrel right because they're all there so he sets up a backdrop and he just he's just inviting them to come down and sit down and have their photos taken they take photos of many but then here comes john smith he walks in he sits down he takes a photo my great grandmother's there oh i'm sorry he wasn't claiming to be 120 he was claiming to be no no that's right see i'm getting my story all confused no he was claiming to be 120 but the government the u.s government can only could only track him to be at least 111 years old. How crazy. Still miraculous. You know, like how crazy is that? Especially during that time when people were dying at the ripe old age of 35, you know. <laughs> right. And so my grandmother, my great grandmother was like, wait, my, my daughter is 111 days old. That's crazy. I want to take a picture of these two together. Wow. Let's hear the photographer. Wow. So he's getting his picture taken. She goes, excuse me, can, can you take a picture with my, my baby? And he says, yes. And so he holds the baby, holds my grandmother, and they take a picture. <clears throat> I, this picture is still in my family. We still have it. I have it on my phone. Um, and so that's amazing. What's even more amazing is right after that, he asks my great-grandmother, what's this baby's name? And my grandmother says, we haven't named her yet. They oh, my gosh. Baby girl. Oh, my gosh. Right. So, so this outraged John Smith. Uh oh. Because how can you have a baby with no name? So he names her right there. He named her Kiwi Pikachupokwe. Now, most most people were probably, oh, that's cute. You know. No, my great grandma said, okay, name's Kiwi Kiwi Pikachupokwe. And so, I'm, I mean, then I come along. I'm born in 1975, and. Wait, can I you pronounce it just slowly, like slowly? If we t- if we turn if we turn down the speedometer, just maybe a smidge. Could I? I want to hear every of the every of those awesome syllables and consonants. And uh, oh, sure, sure. Yeah. You ready? Yeah. And, and don't ask me to spell it. Right. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna say it fast, real quick. Okay. Keep, keep it to catch you, 
Chichikokwe. Chichikokwe. Kawita Kochakotwe. It's hard to say. Kawita Here's the truth. I'm probably not pronouncing it correctly. It, it sounds cool. This is my own grandmother. This is my grandmother. It's, <laughs> and, uh, but I, it's colorful. Again, I called her Kiwita. And the way you spell Kiwita is K E E hyphen W E hyphen P A H. And that's just Kiwita. Okay, so now back to the story. Yes. So, so, so he names her that. He says that's that's your that's your kid's name right there. He goes, I'm going to name her, and what it means is little white princess. But the name evolves. So as she gets older, it means different things. And when she was an old woman, it meant woman who soars above others. Interesting. So the name, the the meaning of the name morphs depending on how old the person is when they have it. Correct. As, In, as I know it, anyway. Incredible. Yeah. What are some of the different? I could be wrong about that. But yeah. do, do you know of how many different incarnations that name's meaning went through as she progressed? Well, I, I know that. Okay, so I, I told you about the photographer, right? Well, we didn't oh, yes. know about the photographer. I always had questions. Like I, I remember asking my dad, "Well, how they take the photo?" Because well, he, he was there. They take a photo. I go, "But who had the camera? Why the backdrop? Because there's a, a photographer's backdrop. It's one of those backdrops like you would see." You know, in like, you know, getting your class photo where it's like a, you know, just a random bunch of colors. Back right. But it's black and white, you know. Um, <clears throat> where'd the backdrop come from? I don't know. But I found out the answer to that, too. But that, 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 that sort of deviates from the Oh, yes. No, and I want to hear that story later on, too, which I love. It, the whole photographer reveals around. The, I, I love yeah, that. Well, yes. I'll give, you, I'll give you the photographer nutshell. I discovered, I, I found... Another picture of John, uh, of uh, John Smith online, that was identical to the one with my grandmother in it, but she wasn't in the photo. And I'm like, but that's the same. He was wearing the same clothes. You could tell it was shot with the same lens. Interesting. Uh, same backdrop. Everything was the same except my grandmother was missing. Whoa. So I, I, I found out where that photo was. It's hanging at a university in Minnesota. Called. They said this is the guy who gave it to us. Called him. He ended up buying. He he bought a a a photography a photographer's studio uh, from a guy whose parents used to run it that had to sell it, and they just sold it like back in the '40s, lock, stock, and barrel, everything in it to this one guy, and he had it for years and years and years, and sold it to this guy, and this guy went in there and found all these photos of John Smith. Well, Whoa. The, the original photographer, his last name is Hackrup. I can't remember his first name, but it was Hackrup. His photos are in the Smithsonian. And they're in the Smithsonian for taking pictures of Native Americans. More specific, taking pictures of John Smith and John Smith's photo by Hackrup. The same photographer who did the photo of my grandmother with him is in the Smithsonian. Incredible. So in a sense, and he was... I talked, to, I talked to this guy, the guy who bought the studio, who's way into Hackrup's work because he owns every bit of it. Wow. And I sent him this photo of my grandmother and my great or my grandmother and, and, and Carmen Akiwe, aka John Smith, and he had a meltdown on the phone. He was like, Oh my God. Oh my God. He goes, Honey, honey, come here. Look at that Dude, this and is he, crazy. It's like finding an the room. Oh my and god. His wife started crying <gasps> because she she's like, Oh my God. 
I can't believe it. Oh. Where did this come from? Oh my gosh. I'm like telling the story that I just told you. Oh my and gosh. Tripping out. Yeah. Dude. Okay, so, so, John Smith, let's start with him. That's where my family intersects with Mary's family. Mary, my wife. Mary's great, great, can't remember if it's great, great, or great, great, great grandfather was William A. McGonagall. And he started a train line in Duluth, Minnesota. And this train would, you know, go all over the place. Well, anyway, uh, he let one, her great-great-grandfather let someone ride for free, and that person was John Smith. Oh, my gosh. She, he let him ride on the train for free because his whole gimmick was he was the oldest living man. So this guy got to ride the train for free, and if you were lucky enough to be on the train with him, you, he would hand you a photograph of himself, and on it it would say, you've just met the oldest man in the world. And oh, my gosh. age on it. Yeah. That's awesome. Like I've seen him. Yeah, there's photos. Of, those photos are online. Some of them are online, and you can see it. Like, says his age on it, like so, 149. Or so let me guess. Was his personal photographer the guy, the the one who was actually uh, printing up those little photos for him to hand out? That's a good question that I don't know. Wow, interesting. So, hey, I don't know the answer to that. So, so okay, so he, he was let on there. It was like having a celebrity on your train. You're like, oh, my God, we yeah. got the world's so, oldest living man. So John Smith, it was actually lucrative for him, too, because he would ride the train for free, and people would pay him a nickel for uh, a photograph. Oh, my gosh. Incredible. Yeah. And it was her great-great-grandfather's train line that he was riding on. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, so, that, so that depot... I mean that, that is that the is that the same so that's the same train line that your that your grandma I don't know I don't know if it was the same train line that my grandmother and my great grandmother were on at the time it could be I don't dude know. that would not surprise I me if it was I mean the fact you I, I I tell people I, I tell people all the time through forgotten tales I could tell you the history of Whittier Hacienda Heights the whole region I could tell you the the whole history of that region. With my whole family, I, I'm still trying to get the, the story straight because what? it's such a wacky. Because my grandmother, my grandma Kiwita, had a had a, a, a very unique and, in my opinion, strange and awesome life. Um, you know, even as she got older. So, so Karmanakiwe, John Smith, he lived well up, I think, like until my grandmother was like 20. So imagine that the government. Can Oh my gosh! One hundred eleven, but he was claiming to be older, and I think his grave says like his tombstone's online too. I think it's, I think it comes out to be like one hundred and forty nine years old. Dude. Don't hold me to that. It could, I can't remember right now. But wow. He was okay, so <clears throat> into his twenties, he and my grandmother kept in contact. That whole oh my month. gosh! Yeah, he considered her his other daughter. That's incredible. He considered her to, so he'd send her gifts all the time, like moccasins. And so my, my grandmother used to wear moccasins all the time because, you know, hey, the shoes, he made them. That so is incredible. She, she lived, yeah, she was living in Long Beach at the time. You know, she went to Wilson High School. She was, you know, one of the top athletes of that school. And Whoa. she was showing up in moccasins and stuff, you know? Wow, <laughs> man. Look at the Kichiko play, but looking white. 
white, you know, whitest looking person in the world, but she had a Native American name and she's wearing moccasins and stuff. Incredible. So she. Yeah, and then uh, uh, she, one day, this is after my grandparents were married, uh, she went to go pay a bill. She went into the, I don't know if it was like an electric bill or a gas bill, doesn't really matter. She went in to go pay the bill. She, she signed the check, you know, Kiwita, because that's what she went by. She didn't go by Kiwita Kitchen Go Boy. She went by Kiwita. So she writes her name down on the check, you know, and Kiwita. And she she pays the bill, and, and the guy looks at the check, and he looks at her and he goes, where's the rest of it? She goes, what do you mean? Did I, did I write it for the full amount? He goes, no, your name. He was, he was a Native American. Oh, my gosh. From the same tribe, which is uh, the Ojibwe, Ojibwe tribe. Oh, dude. He's Ojibwe, and, and he's going, where's the rest of it? And she's like, where, where, oh, I thought I put the full amount. No, your name, where's the rest of it? Wow. <laughs> wow. He knew. He knew. So what, when she told him her her full name, what I mean, what transpired then? I mean, they must have had an awesome conversation that with I, the story. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't Gosh, know what that conversation. See, I'm getting this information from my aunt, who I think was with her when when that happened, or at least knew the story. Now, is like your that. is your aunt the one who says I have many hats, and then she manifested all these hats? No. Okay, so that gets back to my grandma Kiwita who as a child grew up in New York, right? And was kidnapped. Oh my gosh. She was kidnapped by, she was kidnapped twice by the same lady. And that lady was her nanny. And she, gosh, man. And see, even even her nanny, who, who we call Tanta, that was not her name, but we call her Tanta. We still know her as Tanta in the family. There's pictures. My my dad to okay to put a cap on that story right away is that she wasn't arrested or anything. She kidnapped my grandma because she didn't like the way that that my grandparents treated her. My my great grandparents. Oh my gosh! You no, know, you know again, this is the baby that didn't have a name for 111 days. Okay, so I don't know the full story of all that, but I do know. That Tata kidnapped her because she didn't like the way she was being treated and took her all the way to California to get her away. Moved to Lake Whoa. Elsinore. Whoa. Then they kidnapped her again at some point because my great-grandparents, <laughs> they, they owned like a, a wax paper factory or something. Sold everything. Sold the farm, in, in other words. Moved out here because, again, this is like 19... Sometime between 1911 and 1915. So you can't just, you know hop on a jumbo jet and come on over in an hour, you know what I mean? Oh, it was like the Oregon so, Trail back then, huh? Where it took you months, months to travel. Yeah, I don't know how long it took. I, I don't know how they got here. I don't know if they took a car, a, uh, a wagon. I, I don't know. I don't know because, I mean, we're talking cars were around. Oh, well, oh, I don't oh, know. oh. I don't yeah. know what was available. So they, they come to California. They buy a place in Long Beach. <clears throat> And they get my grandmother back. But they don't fire Tonta. They keep her on. Mm-hmm. The only reason that, they, that Tonta told them where she was is because my grandmother got sick. Oh, and my God. So then they came out. So anyway, long story short. Yeah, you can have my around. child, but we're going to continue to employ you. You're, you're back well, in. My, oh, my God. Yeah. 
Did they understand the reasons behind why she took the kid? Like, hey, you're mistreating this kid. Like, I don't like that. You know, so I'm going to take this kid for myself. That's basically it. She didn't like how she how she was being treated by my great grandparents. So that was it. So so there's that. And then uh, she so she she, she's in Elsinore. My grandmother's in in, uh, Long Beach. But my to to sum it up to put a nice little tap on this. My dad and my aunts and uncles all thought of Tanta as more of a grandma than their actual grandma. Oh my gosh. And even even to the point where Tanta, when she died, left the house to my grandmother, her house in, in Elsinore to my grandmother. So it's, it's, it's whole, and then Tanta has her whole, her own story, because her last name was Marsden. And Marsden is a very wealthy family in New York, or was at the time, and, is real, and her uncle was Chase. You probably know more Chase if you think about the bank so it's that kind of family I'm not blood related but in a way related to the Chase family which is quite ironic because I remember us opening up a Chase account for Max Neptune and then us draining us dry (laughs) them draining us dry when it comes time for you to get your money and you're like okay I'm ready to cash out like oh no you actually you owe in back fees or something because you didn't pay for these you're like wait hold on where'd you what'd you do with my money but what's so crazy yeah, I is a biz- I started a business account. They were guaranteeing that it was it was my. Fault. I probably should have looked into that more. Well, but, you know, I'm an artist more than a business person. But well, well I got to say here, what's interesting is that your all these stories that you're telling me about your family and the ways that they crisscross with things <laughs> yeah. is is yeah. just as ripe and rich as the stories that you set well, out to tell the stories well, about. You know, yeah. You know, and on my my grand on uh, my wife's side, that William A. McGonagall. <clears throat> There's some more fun stuff about that. McGonagall is one of the, the the three M's in the 3M Corporation. I don't know who the other M's are, but McGonagall. <laughs> the other M's. He's one of the wow members of the 3M Corporation. Wow, wow. And then years go by. Mary did research on her great great grandfather William A. But she didn't do that until after. Uh, Liam was born, and Liam is short for William, and William's middle name is, it starts with an A, so she named her son William A. McGonagall without, before even knowing she had a great great father named William A. McGonagall. Wow. Wow, man. There's so many synchronicities and so many magical situations just yeah. ev- evolving around like, your family. I, I could, I, so... One of the documentaries I want to do is I want to do a documentary about my grandmother and everything I just told you about. But again, there's more. <laughs> my grandmother led a very unique life, and as you can tell, just from those few stories I told you. What other what other crazy what other crazy stories? <sighs> oh my gosh! Where do I even start? I don't. <clears throat> Not one story is popping in my head right now. Well, well, let me ask you because there's always a story you told me about that always intrigued me. It was you have a relative who says I I wear many or I have many hats and then, oh, but she never had well, them. But then she Tonta. got them. So, so that's that's Tanta. That's why I started telling you about Tanta. I think it's because you know there's that, that I, I, is it Oprah that put out the uh, the uh, what was that what was that movie about? Um, basically repeating stuff in your head and it comes true what was it um, 
The secret? What's that? The secret. The secret. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, so, my, so Tata, essentially, she's not blood related, but she's basically my great grandmother. I never met her, but that's basically what it comes down to. When you treat, when you treat my my dad with the amount of love that she treated him, gave him, you know, she's my great grandmother. My, from my viewpoint, her whole thing was. She loved hats. She loved hats, but didn't have any. Didn't have many. But she would, when people, you know, when she would talk about hats, people would ask her, "Well, do you have any?" She, "Oh, yes, I have many beautiful hats." <laughs> she was, she, she so was she was saying it facetiously. She was. She was to have any. So she was just kind of saying it. She was just kind of saying it playfully, like facetiously, facetiously, like, "Oh, I have many hats." Like just joking, like it was like. Well, she just, said it because she 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 always felt that she said something like that strong enough and with oh so that was an intent that oh, it would actually come true. And so what happened was she just start telling people, "No, I have many beautiful hats, many beautiful hats." And so she just told everyone, and then people started going, "Oh, well, you know, Tata, she loves hats. <laughs> she loves hats." <laughs> and so people started giving her hats. She loves. Listen, you know, she, she loves hats. Had many beautiful hats. Wow, she just magnetized oh, it. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, so I am a very wealthy man. I have millions of dollars. Here. That's right. Who are who are some of the uh, who are some of the um, uh, your your dream collaborators that you have already worked with? Who who are some of these guys that you frequently work with? Well, okay, indirectly. Indirectly, the, the first one when you say that, indirectly, I, I actually got to work on a Steven Spielberg production. I, uh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> and again, it wasn't like a major motion picture. There it is. That. It was for the year 2000, and I was doing motion control camera work. But the cool part was, is Steven Spielberg's production assistant was with me, and at one point he he got a call from Spielberg, and I could hear his dude. Voice over the cell phone and I'm going oh my god how cool oh is this god. from now on anything that so okay so from now on every Forgotten Tales thing that I see I ex- I expect to see an additional memorandum on there which says um director who frequently works with <laughs> Steven Spielberg live 
he performed the soundtrack live at the, on the foot on, on the on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Will Smith was hosting, and then he turned it over to the narrator, who was the president at the time, Bill Clinton. And he, Bill Clinton, narrated it, and then brought in other people, other very famous people I can't remember off the top of my head right now, that also came in and, and narrated and. Uh, uh, oh my god, it was such an amazing thing, and then there's John Williams of course, I'm like blown away I didn't, I didn't know all that making this, I knew Steven Spielberg that is incredible, incredible I didn't know all this other stuff and then so when I'm watching it on New Year's Eve going, oh my god, and then I waited for the credits, and my name was four names under Spielberg I was, again, I was 22 dude <laughs> and so, so I just about cracked my pants I mean, dude, I, so, I, that's understandable. Yeah. My God, this is incredible because you get to see your handiwork right up there before the eyes of these people who are, well, you know, he's got his so Steven Spielberg approves, you know, stamp on it, and you're enveloped well, within this collaboration. Okay, so here's the other thing. You know, we talk about, okay, as an artist, we all can relate to when we say, when someone gives you uh, criticism on your work or tells you this is wrong or maybe, you know, constructive criticism here or or maybe someone critiques your work or whatever. And as we grow in the field, we learn that that's normal, especially when you have clients, right? Well, okay, so I made all the, I, I shot all this video, all these motion control camera shots, right? And then forgot about it. And then, well, didn't forget about it. We just moved on to other projects that were coming down the pipe. Well, maybe a few months later, that same guy came back and was like, we have some corrections, which means... Uh, Steven Spielberg looked at someone at work and said, well, you know, why don't we tweak this one? Tweak you know what I mean? Which means... Yeah. Oh, my so God. I looked at my shit and was like, change this and change that, fix this and fix that, you know, maybe try this, maybe try that. And I did. So, indirectly, I didn't meet the man, but he critiqued my work. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. So that's cool. Wow, man. Well, I could say my work was critiqued by Spielberg at one point. That's good. Yeah. That is good. Yeah. See, I can also tell you about my... See, I'm going to wrap it up here because i got to go back to work. But, uh, uh, also, my, my, my grandmother, Kiwita, her father, my great-great... Or my... Not my great-great. My great-grandfather was an actor. He was a magician's assistant. He was a performer. In fact, he was in uh, one of the early Edison films. What's I, the name of that one again? The name. What's that? Isn't it? Isn't it something about a, a genie or something, or like a, a? It's like a dream kind oh, of thing. Okay, something. So, Lantern. Oh, yes. There's two things. There's two things. There's like I can't remember the name of the movie, but it's something like I, I automatically all I say it's like Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. It's not that, but it's kind of that. <laughs> it's kind of a title like that. And then, but, but he hung out with a magician called uh, Germain the Wizard. He and my great, he, my great grandfather and my great grandmother were his assistants. In fact, I think it's more like my great grandmother was his opening act, and she would she was a mind reader. Oh my God, and that's awesome! My, yeah, yeah. And then my my great grandfather was the magician's assistant. And he played a an English butler who. Um, would fumble all the time. He'd break things. He was a comic relief. 
so he'd come up and try to help the magician out, and he'd, like, break something. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. But that was the whole shit. Yeah. That was the whole thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Jermaine the Wizard. That's incredible. Very famous, too, by the way. I didn't know. I'd never heard of him. So they're, like, a the Penn and Teller kind of act? We're, like, you know... This is, like... I think it's like Houdini era, you know. He was oh like my God. That, that, during that same time, and Dude, they were like competing magicians. That's a movie in itself. The whole, the whole, the whole uh, Jermaine the Wizard. You oh, know, that could be a series. And then you're, and then you're, uh, you, man, your relative on there. Everything, everything connected to my grandmother is so like it, it, every time I tell a story, I feel like oh, really this doesn't sound real. Like you're related like, to a mind reader. Oh, God, so much cool stuff. But on that note, I really should uh, get back to work. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Well, thank you for, for letting me uh, tell these stories. It's fun for me to tell them. People, I want to tell you to check out Sil- Silver Grand Slam. Check out uh, John's TikTok uh, channel and check out his kick-ass G.I. <laughs> Joe um, fixins. He gives you he gives you a history lesson um, that you're I not am, getting anywhere else. I, I love making videos. I love making history documentaries. I get very serious with my video work, where I'm silly and I'm playful, is when I collect my G.I. Joe collection. That's just my hobby. I love it. I know people, there's some people that go, oh, you collect action figures? And I say, hell yes. They're (laughs) badass. They root me in my childhood. Mm -hmm. And I love every minute of it. I love G.I. Joe, Yo Joe. And check out, check out, so the Forgotten Tales, what, what's the URL for that, for the YouTube? Just look up Forgotten know. Tales, you can, you can John Garza. For, if, if you, I'll put the link, I'll put the link. I, yeah, I don't know the link, I, I can't remember it offhand. I'll um, send them to the Turnbull Canyon YouTube, one. Yeah, if you go to YouTube, you, the, the, the easiest one to, to probably search is Electrodome. If you just do an Electrodome search, or even Turnbull Canyon, T-U-R-N. B-U-L-L. In fact, that's probably the best way. Turnbull Canyon. If you look up Turnbull Canyon on YouTube, you'll find all those documentaries. You'll just go down the rabbit hole on Forgotten Tales, and we have something like, I don't know, 12 or 13 documentaries, I think, at this point. I'll, I'll be making more in the future, but right now I've, I've been taking a hiatus on it for a little while. It's that a treasure trove. It's a gift that keeps on giving. Yep, that's right. So, all right, man. man. It's just good fun. <laughs> well, thanks for thanks for telling me all this information. So now, um, I'll release. I'm going to release it in two parts. A sequel. I'm, it'll have a sequel. <laughs> Part two. Mm-hmm. That's right. All right, man. Well, all thanks. Right, man. Thanks so much for the co- for the convo. Thanks yeah, for the convo, course. dude. It was lit. It was so woke. <laughs> uh, I'm down with that shit, Holmes. <laughs> Alright, man. Good talking to you. I'll talk to you soon. Alright, you take care. Bye. This is Blythe Baines, and you're listening to Inspirado Projecto.